You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest today is Jim Peterick, and you are right now listening to his smash hit from 1970, Vehicle, by the Ides of March, a band that he formed in high school in Berwyn, Illinois, back in 1964. They released some singles first as the Shondells, then in 66, they changed their name to Ides of March, were signed to a major label where they released four albums, starting with that album, Vehicle, broke up in the mid-70s, but reformed and have had four independent releases since 2010. But wait, what's that other music? Oh man, I bet you recognize this because Jim is better known for his work between 1978 and 1988 as the main songwriter for Survivor, with seven very successful albums, including their third Eye of the Tiger here. In addition, during this period, he wrote the biggest hits for 38 Special. He's written with Brian Wilson, Sammy Hagar. He's released eight albums since 2003 as Pride of Lions. Three with a smooth jazz outfit, Jim Peterick's Life Force. Three more with Jim Peterick and World Stage, which allows him to work with folks from Styx, Night Ranger, Ario Speedwagon, Chicago, etc., etc. He is a ridiculously successful songwriter and has even written the book Songwriting for Dummies. I'm going to talk with him about his brand new single, Empty Arena. Then look to the 2019 Ides of March release, Play On. The song is Friends Like You, featuring saxophonist Mindy Bear. Then back to the song L.A. Goodbye, featured on the 1971 Ides of March album, Common Bond. Though we're actually going to hear a very recent but very faithful recreation of that. We'll conclude by listening to a 1992 single by the Ides of March, with many special guests, The Spirit of Chicago. For more information, please see jimpeterick.com. For more about this podcast, visit nakedlyexaminedmusic.com and to support what we're doing and get an ad-free version of this episode, I invite you to go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic and sign up for a small per-episode contribution. So I want to get right to our first song, this most recent single, Empty Arena, the first thing under your own name in a while. Do you want to say a little about it before the folks hear it in full? Absolutely. I use music to keep my mind off of the strange situation we're in, and yet I sing a lot about it. And I think it's very cathartic for a writer to write about the situation we're in. It kind of makes me feel like, you know, if I can make a difference, if I can bring a little bit of joy into people's lives, that I'm still doing my job. But Empty Arena, I wrote really at the beginning of the whole pandemic before anybody really knew just how catastrophic it was going to be. And I was watching the Black Crows doing a reunion show for an empty theater. And I just thought that was so cool and yet so tragic at the same time. But they had found a way to share their music, even though there was no one in the audience. And they gave it their all. And I was really blown away. And then a couple of days later, you know, it was Keith Urban and John Legend. And of course, you know, football teams, pro football teams playing for an empty stadium and giving it their all. And that's, I sat down at the piano and, and I wrote the first couple of lines. What if they scored, what if the team scored a touchdown and nobody cheered? Uh, what if the band did their big encore with no one to hear? And then I came up with the line, this is the sound of one hand clapping in the empty arena. And it just followed from there. And I recorded it and I did a live stream with my son from his uh, studio called Jam Lab. And we took in donations of over $5,000 for Music Cares. So that was really the first step in my musical kind of inspiration from this tragic season.
if the team's got a touchdown and nobody cheered? What if the band played that big encore with no one in his shot to hear? What if the children learned all of their lives, determined to sing at their moment to shine? But mom and dad were nowhere standing. Yeah, so it's funny how the political statements in here 
things are changing so quickly that you said this is early April, right? When this started or late mid-March, something like that? Mid-March. Mid-March. Mm-hmm. Yes. How let's join together and get everybody back in the arenas like means something completely different politically now. Like mere weeks later, we're taking back our freedom. Like there was no protests about lockdowns in April or March. Yeah, things do change, but that's an answer to optimism. Bring back the sound of music and laughter to this empty arena. Hope is contagious more than any disease. I think that's my key line to the song. But you're right. I mean, now we're opening up gradually and tentatively, but fingers crossed, to say the least. So I was very pleased to hear, although too late for me to actually look at it, that you actually wrote songwriting for dummies. That You're not new at dissecting your songs. I am instead very fresh off reading your autobiography. So if folks want to hear the, I wouldn't say dissections in terms of there's no music theory or something thrown out into in that book, but there's a lot of like with your early singles in particular, oh, here's, you know, I came up with this line and somebody else came up with this line and, and very much the order of the things came together, which always interests me. So was it lyrics first on this one? Was it the piano riff? Do you get the beginning of a lyric and then start writing the music and then the rest of the lyrics kind of get fit into what you've come up musically? What's your process here? That's not a bad way of saying it. But I will say, you know, segueing a little bit to the Songwriting for Dummies book, there really is no one way of doing it. You know, I wrote The Search is Over totally in my head before I even sat down with the piano. I heard the chords. I taped it on my little tape recorder on the passenger seat of the car. And when I got home, I found those chords that were in my head. And I started writing the lyric. And Frankie Sullivan helped me finish that lyric and come up with that concept of the search is over. You are with me all all the while. And that was like the big turnaround when we realized sometimes the search takes you full circle back to where, where you started. So that started in my head. Empty Arena started with those lines I told you about, one hand clapping. And that's when I went to the piano and I, I call it just doodling around. And you truly are doodling until you find something that sounds interesting. And there was that little melody, and that melody was like, this is the sound of one hand clapping in this empty arena. And it just, oh yeah, man. You know, suddenly I felt, I'm Elton John, man, you know. <laughs> and it's always exciting, you know, finding a melody that actually fits perfect with the lyric. And then you know you've got something going for it. Okay, so I was wondering about that, that the introduction where it has the kind of eerie end of the first piano run, it sounds like it's going to have a fourth thing, but instead let's just let it sustain. So it's C, D, A minor, B flat minor, A flat minor. That A flat minor is the weird one. And I asked Larry, Larry Millis is not only a member of Ides of March since 64 with me, but he's also my engineer and critiquer. And I said, is that too dark? And he goes, man, no, that's perfect for the song. And I needed to hear that. Sometimes you need someone to say, yeah, you're okay. That's a good chord. Well, if anything, I'd wondered why it, doesn't stay there longer that by putting it that much reverb on it and by having that little break i mean it's really only a couple beats before the piano you even have pickup notes you don't even wait till the one to have it come back in and in fact the second time as you're introducing the guitar and the bass and the drums 
it seems like it could have been, you know, kind of a Pink Floyd opening. Do, 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 and just kind of let it. And then, you know, if you wanted an eight minute song. <laughs> well, right. You know, and if you were in the, in the uh, studio producing me, it probably would have been. <laughs> you could have the eerie emptiness, but it still is locked into, you know, a fundamentally melodic. We want to get to the soaring singing part. We don't want to just dwell on the emptiness too much. It's a balance. And a lot of my songs are, are kind of a balance. I call them bittersweet. There's some major key things and some minor key things. And I, and I like to blend the two. Not always, but I find that makes a kind of a rich stew. So for this song, when you get to the chorus, is about a minute in. I always wonder how, especially in a band with Survivor, where you had so many power anthems, arena rock anthems, and this is definitely meant to connote those, maybe not actually being one, but, you know, how big to make the big section, you know, because this, you've got some of the gestures there, you've got, you've got these whole note guitar strums that could have come out of Pete Townsend, but yet the whole thing is still like, you don't let the energy get out of control here. It's still like a very Baroque, not over the top. Are there points in which you're kind of, okay, wait, that's way too much. This is one of the Pride of Lions tunes here that, you know, like Gone, I'm thinking, like where you just make the big part as big as it can be, you know, (laughs) that will fit. But this, you're playing with that long experience doing that so many times, but keeping this fairly controlled. Well, right. And it's funny you should mention Gone because somebody sent me, it came through my Facebook, a, a band from Brazil. I don't even know what they were called. They covered Gone. And this is just yesterday. And look it up if you if you can. It's I guess it's on my Facebook page now. And they did a great job. And I realized just how over the top that song is in terms of grandiosity and modulations and Toby going up to like, you know, I don't know what note that is, G, high G, you know. And I didn't want that to be, you know, empty arena. That would have been too much for the subject matter. So I kind of purposely didn't make it over the top like that. There's really no modulations. And um, in fact, the new Pride of Lions album, I kind of shied away from the modulations and kind of went back to the Survivor days when rarely we did a modulation. I remember it was a big deal when we went up a half step on the last verse of Is This Love? But again, that was a subtle change. It wasn't like this big build up and then, oh man, it's it's modulating. It just all of a sudden is that and it like does this leap and it's really cool. But I kind of went back to that formula for a new Pride record that I just finished and mastered. Do these things tend to get more out of control when you take it live? I would assume that the amount of notes in the drum fills goes up 20% at least and we're kind of letting loose. Is that something that you had to at some point consciously dial back or what was the attitude in Survivor about that say? With Survivor, we usually kept it pretty close to the record. Frankie was very much a fan of authenticity. Of course, you know, he'd extend solos and stuff, but it was never like your typical hair band that did those kind of things. With Pride of Lions, it's different. We go over the top. And, and Toby, I have to put a governor on him. I mean, he goes crazy at the end of songs and stuff. And the, and the crowd goes wild. So it, it feeds him and he goes even crazier, especially the European audiences is where Pride of Lions plays the most. They go nuts over Toby. And I think he's just a great singer. 
Let me take us back to this song, a particular spot, about 2.43 in the bridge. I'm just going to play a little bit of it. You've already had a pretty big chorus, you know, not over the top, but you're trying to bring it up a level. There's this sort of big chuff, chuff, chuff of eighth notes in the left. Is that another guitar? Is that an extra piece of percussion? What do you know what I'm even referring to? Yeah, guitar chunks, I, I believe. And no, no, you know what? That's the right hand of the piano. That's what that is. Okay. The guitar on the right is doing quarter notes there, but there's actually an eighth note thing that it's coming across. I guess that's the bottom of the piano, but there's enough of a percussive element to it. I don't know. It's an interesting mixing challenge, especially when you bring in a sound like that, how to make it go away. To me, when I'm listening on headphones, it's like a pretty big, and then to have, oh, now the chorus is still going to be big, but that thing is going to disappear. Yeah, I think it works, but you're right. It is a challenge. And that bridge kind of, I get to exercise my fascination with Backrack David songs things he used to write for like Dionne Warwick and other artists where there's these major sevenths. Bring it up, let it go. That second chord, very uh, Burt Bacharach, who is one of my all-time heroes. And I have to kind of weave that out of my rock songs. I remember teaching Jimmy Jameson the bridge for The Search is Over. This is when he auditioned for the band back in uh, 83. You know, David uh, Bickler had just left and we auditioned all these singers. Most of them were not very good. And then along comes Jimmy and he just blew the doors off. So the first song we taught him was uh, Broken Promises and he just like nailed it. And then we taught him The Search is Over and we did it in E flat, which is the key it ended up with. And that bridge, let's see what part of it. Then I looked into your eyes on the chorus, that eyes note. And the first time he sang it, he fluffed it and it, his voice cracked. And Frankie and I stopped and I go, Frankie, we better lower this to E. And Jimmy goes, famous quote, Jimmy goes, oh man, give half a man a chance, you know? And uh, we cracked up. We've used that phrase ever since, but we tried it again in E flat and he dead nailed it. So the song ended up in the higher key. But I remember the bridge used to be different. It used to be like a bird back rack melody. And it went, I'll show you the back rack version. Um, now here's the uh, version that didn't make it. Now the master rich out behind me knows that I have lost broken hearts, lie victims of, you know. And Jimmy learned it like that. And Frank, he goes, oh man, no, 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 no. That's too fancy. You know, I don't know what he said exactly. He didn't like it. So I said, okay, all right. How about this? Now the mile stretch out behind me. And that's the way it ended up. But the first one was so back rack. I want to play another spot, just getting out of the bridge that, you know, you'd mentioned before this going up a half step trick. And I kind of thought it was going to do this, but you do something else instead. I mean, in researching your songwriting for dummies, did you have to learn the music theory so that you know what kind of turnaround that is, for instance? Hell no. Okay. I, I still don't know how I did it. it. In fact, my wife goes, that's really a cool modulation. I said, believe it or not, it stays in the same key. I don't know how I pulled that one off. That is weird. But I know I had to really work on the melody to surf that change. I was surprised that there's no guitar solo in here. You have, during the outro, this 
little kind of slide guitar part. Is that actual slide or you're just <laughs> sliding up? That's fake slide. Yeah, I can't play slide for, for nothing. Uh-huh. Was there something about the, just as far as if you want to connote arena rock tropes, then having some sort of, now we're going to stop and have the big staggery solo and add another 30 seconds to the song. Was that considered? Was that rejected? Yeah, that was rejected. I was trying to stay away from the cliches because I think it would take away from the message of the song, which is a little more serious. You know, it's not about posing on stage. We're, we're trying to get a message across. So believe it or not, I showed some restraint, which is very rare for me. <laughs> well, instead of that, we have this funky keyboard. Which I always think about the Penny Lane trumpet. That's <laughs> a very fanfarish kind of thing. But at the same time, it's a definite 80s sound, that choice of patch. Yeah, you're right. It's a patch. It's a fake piccolo trumpet, but it kind of brings back the sound of a piccolo. That's what it's supposed to at least remind you of. Believe me, if I had a real trumpet player available, we still don't visit each other as much as I would like, of course. But yeah, it's very 80s. And then as soon as the guitar actually goes up an octave and it sounds like it's going to be a solo note, you're fading out. Let's keep this under control. Keep it to four minutes. I haven't sort of taken a survey. How often do you fade out at this point? I feel like if songs are based on live performances, then usually you've come up with an end. It's only when you construct something in the studio or you just really are feeling self-sacrificial. Like, we don't really need that end. Just fade it out. It's fine. Yeah. Well, I fade out more than I want to. But a lot of times in the studio, I will create an ending so that if miming to track or something for a TV show or whatever, I have a version like that. And then at least you have an ending to learn for the live show. But sometimes a fade is just what you want to hear. It's a cliche, uh, the fade. I mean, they probably created that in the 50s. You know, it wasn't around in the 40s. And suddenly it was okay to fade. I remember Steely Dan talking, not in person talking to, but Fagan was saying, sometimes we work for six hours to get the right fade, you know, just the right moment and the right slope. Yeah, because you want to hear... Oh, I did that cool thing there. I want to hear that a little bit, but not too much. Just, can you just move it half a second to the right? You know, I guess digitally, it's way, way, way easier. So with Steely Dan stuff, it was always the greatest licks at the bottom of the fade, like at the end of my old school. You know, it's like you waited for the just like that's the shit right there. We haven't talked about the lyrics at all. Certainly the overall imagery is very clear and you've got the little, I want to say shtick, but you've got stuff like the sound of one hand clapping. In other words, it's not purely, let's say, something Frankie would have approved of. Is that is that? <laughs> Boy, you got that right. <laughs> <laughs> I've been fascinated, you know, as you've been reading this book and you were talking about Larry's role in there, you know, on this, of how much you let yourself do that. I remember reading an interview with Robin Hitchcock saying, like, the secret is just to not censor yourself. If you just want to put in a line, a line just comes out about, and then I stopped and ate a sandwich, and he has lots of things referring to crabs and gel, you know, lots of weird stuff for him. But if you're trying to not confuse folks, (laughs) I guess, then restraint is good. And having somebody else, whether it's a producer or somebody to tell you, no, that's a little too much. Obviously, what you describe your relationship with Frankie took that a little too far. But as a lifestyle, it might not have been sustainable. But it seems like you've got Larry or are there other folks involved? Or have you internalized that? In other words, you've got your inner Frankie voice. You've got your inner, you know, pretty much everybody I've ever worked with. I can kind of imagine, would that person approve of this? Do I care? Is that appropriate? You know, what style am I trying to fit into here? 
Yeah, I definitely have an inner Frankie. I don't always listen to him. And then Larry is another one who kind of tell me if I'm going too far. I remember there was a song, uh, Here's a Good Frankie. It's a song that we never, Survivor recorded, but it only exists as, as a demo. It's called One Step Ahead of the Flames. I don't know if you could even find it as a bootleg, but Frankie wasn't at the beginning of the session. I did the vocal with Dave, and Dave was back in the band at this time. You know, we went back and forth like ping pong balls in, in the 90s between the two singers. And the phrase was kicking ass and taking names. <laughs> and, and Dave loved it. I loved it. Frankie goes, well, that line's got to go. <laughs> so no kicking ass and taking names. But that was a good example of, like you said, the restraint, which was usually a very commercial instinct in Frankie. Yeah, just looking at this, we used to join hands rocking and laughing. You know, what I like about that is that it is literal. It's not rocking and rolling. You are not rolling on the stage, but you are literally rocking, you know? So it's okay to use a word that sounds cliche as long as, like, there's a literal meaning to it. But before we go on to the next song, let's stop and talk about our sponsors, the first of which is Raycon Earbuds. I know we've got a lot of listeners working from home, maybe going on long walks, other fitness activities. And, of course, you want to be listening to what you're listening to, not what the other people in your house are listening to. Everybody in your house needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. And Raycon earbuds started about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market and sound just as amazing as other top audio brands you know. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet with six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. I wear headphones pretty much constantly. And I have this pair of noise-canceling, really insanely expensive, over-the-ear headphones that I use way too much. But when I got these Raycons this week, I actually prefer them. They sound wonderful, and they're just much less awkward to deal with. I find that the earbuds that come with the iPhone actually hurt my ears a little. These definitely do not. And I love the design of the case that is a charger that magnetically suck in the earbuds and hold them in there. And the design of the button that lets you pause what you're listening to. It's all just extremely well done. So see what all the hype is about. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash NEM. And when you purchase, use the offer code NEM15. That's buyraycon.com slash NEM, promo code NEM15 for Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash NEM, offer code NEM15. I am very excited to continue to promote Masterclass on the show because it is what you get out of this show, but with a lot more time, a lot more budget. Masterclass gives you exclusive access to online courses taught by masters of their craft. There are more than 75 of them. You can get an annual all-access pass to get all of them at a very reasonable price. Legends like Herbie Hancock and Itzhak Perlman, Carlos Santana and Reba McIntyre among a dozen other music courses. And while you're there, of course, you're going to want to check out the things by Steve Martin, Penn & Teller, Neil Gaiman, Jane Goodall, Paul Krugman, Bob Woodward. It is crazy. And I was very glad to see the brand new course, Sheila E. Teaches Drumming and Percussion, Sheila E. being the niece of one of the guests I've had on this show, Alejandro Escovedo. And it's a super entertaining course for both beginners, experienced drummers that want to improve to work on their solos, their fills, for drummers who might want to expand into the congas or timbales, other percussion. And also for Prince fans, she goes into her work with him. 
And of course, every course comes with accompanying materials. There's a community aspect. Seriously, check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass at masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. All right, back to Jim. Let's get to the second song here. Friends Like You by Ides of March from Play On 2019. So this started as a co-write with Mindy Abair, or is it just featuring her? We wrote it together. We were trying to write songs for her solo album. I was staying at her little, cute little bungalow in Hollywood. Just a wonderful little place right off the Sunset Strip. It was really cool. I had my own little bedroom. And I'd wake up in the morning, and we'd hit a piano and start writing. And this was earmarked for her album that was called Wild Heart. But it never made it. Uh, it just had a little trouble with it. I think if I was in the studio with her, I could have made it happen. But no hard feelings. I mean, she loved the song. And when the odds were cutting the album, I said, Mindy, I want to cut Friends Like You. And I want you to play the sax on it. And she was thrilled. Because one of my favorite songs, really. I mean, the chorus is just so infectious. It's almost like sing-song. That's really a dumb chorus, but I don't care. You know, people love that chorus. And, and of course, the message of the song is universal. Friends like you are hard to find. Can't count the times I've leaned on your shoulder. Heart and soul, solid gold, like photos in our folder. Very nostalgic and very romanticized. Time. 
So, man, you know from the first note what kind of song this is. It connotes the Saturday Night Live band for me, but this kind of relaxed R&B. I mean, is there a more technical genre name for this kind of blues rock? Well, they call it Yacht Rock, but... Yacht Rock. (laughs) It's just very M.O.R. And I don't mean that in a negative way. And there is that genre they're calling Yacht Rock, and it's my good friend David Pack in Ambrosia. He fits squarely in Yacht Rock, except the early days of Ambrosia where they were a bit more progressive. But you know, it's Christopher Cross, it's Michael McDonald, it's friends like you. Yeah, I'm not ashamed of it. I mean, was this, I was going to say, part of the Ides of March sound. In going through those albums, I was really unclear what that sound was, or if there was, maybe that's the more psychologically healthy but less marketable alternative to having somebody in the band who is, no, this is not our sound of Survivor. That it's just kind of all over the place, a lot of experimentation. Well, very true. You know, we were young. We got together in 64. Our first hit record was 66. It's called You Wouldn't Listen on Parrot. Went to 42, nationally number seven in Chicago. And at that point, we're a British invasion wannabe band. You Wouldn't Listen sounded like the Hollies meets the Kinks meets Curtis Mayfield. It was that diverse. And then we had about eight singles on Parrot, none of which made it, all in the kind of British invasion zombies kinks thing. And then we got a few horns, and then we got a few more horns, and had the breakthrough hit in 1970 called Vehicle. So we kept changing our sounds. Whenever we were enamored with a new style, that's what we'd become. We didn't know who we were. And I'm a songwriter that's all over the board. And it didn't have someone to say, Jim, let's stay in the British invasion thing, or let's stay in the horn thing. Because after the horn thing, we went into a Crosby, Stills, and Nash thing, because we were enamored with that. So... I think the big identity problem with the eyes is that we kept changing styles. Well, I guess the consistency is just, I was going to say kind of a party band. Just the way that you describe it is the reason for the band's success is just that you went over, well, people danced around at gigs. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a matter of perhaps survivors, a lot of their success is due to just super crisp arrangements and production, whereas Ides of March was just out there live in front of people and at least, you know, for the first bunch of years, right? It seems like you went through a process of, okay, well, that song didn't go over live, so it's out of the set, as opposed, you know, that that was the criteria. It's true. I mean, the funny story is Vehicle, we played it for a year live, thinking it was only a dance song. We had no idea that hit potential. We went in the studio, we cut a four-song demo for Warner Brothers. We put it last. We put it number four because we thought it was a throwaway. That's how clueless we were. And Warner Brothers got back to our manager and said, that fourth song is smash. All you got to do is add the love. You love you. Add those answers. You got a number one record. Went in the studio and we didn't have any tracks left. So we wild tracked it on a two track. That's why the stereo version has different answers than the mono version. Because they had two versions. But it just to show you that I'm still not my own best judge of what's commercial. I remember Frankie and I wrote two songs for Rocky Three ever since the world began, which didn't make that movie, but it made one down the road, and a little thing called Eye of the Tiger. Well, it's kind of a sad story because the last time I saw my father before he passed away of a heart attack at age 70, I said, Dad, I just wrote two songs for Rocky Three. Oh, that's great, son. Let's hear one. 
And instead of playing them out of the Tiger, I played them ever since the world began. I said, this is my favorite. Clearly, it was my favorite of the two. The other one was like, yeah, this is good, you know. But man, ever since the world began, it was just like killing it for me. So, I mean, at that point, I didn't even realize that in year 2020, that Eye of the Tiger would still be around, still make a difference in people's lives. That's uh, pretty mind-blowing. So, it's obviously, it's good to have someone there to bounce ideas off of so that you're staying within a genre, just making the song focused. The lyrics to this seem super focused, right? They're very consistent. Let's put it that way. Was that a matter of the the dynamic that you and Mindy were having? Or how did that collaboration work? Was it even a lyrical partnership? I think collaborations in general, when they work, you come up with a better song. If it doesn't work, it's a disaster. I've had some examples of collaborations that look good on paper, but just did not work. You know, we'd cancel each other out. We didn't like each other's ideas. At the end of the day, we either had a crummy song or no song at all. But with Mindy and I, we kind of think the same. And we worked on every line, talking about, you know, we would tell stories about friends. And, and all of a sudden, we'd have some line. people that we love in our lives. We translated that to lyrics, you know, 38 Special. We had a chemistry that proved itself with many big hits. We're on the same page, lyrically. And I knew what I could say and what I couldn't say. Again, kind of moderating yourselves, censoring it. I know Don Barnes couldn't say this or that because I know his mentality. But I could write a song on my own. And sometimes they're, they're pretty good. You know, Vehicle and a bunch of other ones. But I think you get a more interesting song when there's a cross-pollinization of different personalities, different viewpoints. And I think that's what Frankie and I, what made us successful because if it didn't pass muster with Frankie, it was out. And we had to search for something else. When I see that live in Japan, it is such a tailored band. There's not a bead of sweat that's out of place. Very, very controlled, very, very good. At the time, I didn't even know how professional we were at that stage of the game. So with this, do you recall any particular lyrical ideas that might have been thrown out and put aside? I mean, once you establish, we're going to say birds of a feather through every endeavor. Like, that is a particular aesthetic. We're saying, this is cheese and that is fine. Like, this is a feel-good song and we're going to put oohs and it really, you know, can suggest a whole musical landscape because that's the aesthetic we're going for. Right. I'm not embarrassed by a lyric like that. I remember when we first played High on You for Ron Nevison, who was producing Vital Signs, and he said, higher than a kite? That is so corny. I said, yep, it's corny. We're leaving it. And Frankie didn't, didn't bat an eye. We, it stayed in the song. Now I'm higher than a kite. I mean, that is such a cliche, but it's almost such a cliche that you can get away with it. Well, that's how you sing it, too. I mean, the fact that he's singing it that way, like, I don't think anybody has ever sung that line in that way. (laughs) You know, let's go fly a kite up to the highest height. Like, no, that's a different aesthetic. I always said that Jimmy could sing the phone book and get away with it. He had such a great delivery. I don't know if he always knew exactly the emotion behind every line, but you believe every word he's saying. So I guess that's where the, the freedom in this I see, most obviously, is your phrasing throughout both the last two songs like for instance this uh, self-respect deeper than the ocean there's kind of a self-respect deeper than the like you're putting in these little pauses or you're rushing in you know we got to rush in a few words so that the word you want on the one is on the one it sounds very i don't know free is the way because it sounds like oh i need to make sure i get those words in there before i get to the one (laughs) (laughs) i found a cure in a world that's so unsure 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think about that stuff. It just comes naturally, I, and that's not bragging. I don't design any of that. It just comes with a song the way it should be phrased. So, you know, like how many vocal takes, for instance, would you do on this? Or had you played this live enough that it was virtually none? Actually, we had not performed it live when we went to the studio. I want to mention that Fred Mullen produced the album, as you probably saw. He's tremendous. We, the guys decided after many years of being self-produced that we needed that extra ear to keep Peterick in line. <laughs> Peterick, which is me, uh, as you know, the latest song I write is always the best song, even if it's not. So we needed a guy to listen to 30 songs and pick out the best, you know, 15. And Fred was that guy. I've known him for many years. We used to hang out in Nashville, where he still lives. And we would go to dinner, have a few drinks, and talk about oldies. And he was a big Ides fan, dear friend of Paul Schaefer and Thunder Bay. And the three of us used to get together and, and talk. Finally, I said, why don't you produce the Ides? And he just about fell over because he really wanted to do that. The best thing we ever did, we went through all the songs we had. And he picked 15. And then we honed those. And what I'm leading to is how many takes. He demanded, well, first of all, we didn't always perform with click tracks. We went out there and we did performances at my son's studio, which is called the Jam Lab in Brookfield, Illinois. We would just play, just like the old days when the vehicle, we all played at once. Everything you heard was on one take. Uh, well, two takes, but I mean, at once. And that's the way we wanted to do this record. So we would do many, many takes of something like Friends Like You till we had it right. And that was a hard song to get right. I don't know why the jazzy chords, the groove had to be just right, but kind of Al Green thump on the back beat, you know, which is really what makes that song cook. But then I would do vocals and he demanded four or five complete vocals. And that's after I got warmed up. When I finally got warmed up, it would be four or five vocals that he could comp together. And he was a great comper, and he would get the cream of the crop of every line. So as natural as it sounds, it's very patched together. And I got to say, I agree with all his choices. He really did a great job. And can you decode at all the harmonies that you have? You have, what, five people singing, and they're clearly not five parts. So you're doing some kind of, is there a standard... Two guys double on the tenor one and two guys double on the baritone one and uh, Scott's on top or, you know, is there a formula or is it kind of by song? It is pretty much, but generally Bob and Scott double the high parts. Bob's falsetto at that point, Scott's full rasp high voice. And Larry's usually either the low part or Mike's the low part. Larry's usually above me. That's right. Mike's on the, the baritone. He's the drummer. We have a, always had a really, really pleasant blend. Every song could be a little different, but it really kind of breaks down the way I just said it. Well, that's going to be especially important. Let's, let's get the third song out there, L.A. Goodbye. It's originally from Common Bond 1971. The version that folks are going to hear is a re-recording. It's fairly faithful. You add an extra verse, though, for ideology. Was this around, Scott thought, 1992-something, or is it way more recent? Do you have any idea of the ideology version? That would have been 92, yeah, that we called that from. And that was the original version, really, with that extra verse. And it wasn't an edit, but we do have a version like that back from 1970. Our manager, producer Bob Destacki and Frank Rand felt it was too long. So we did another version that became the release, where we go straight to the bridge after the second verse. So this kind of restored the extra verse. 
which it's good to have some more preparation for that do 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 do. But let's uh, let's get it out there. It's a little longer Every time I wave goodbye Sentimental breakdown You know I break down a lot Where I'm not supposed to lie I always see myself this pillow as I board my plane, something inside my brain needs to wave LA goodbye. LA goodbye. So long, kid. Sunset strip, and I feel trip over to your highway.
I was reading in your book a little bit about what this was about, that you were in Los Angeles <laughs> doing some recording and coming back. And But do you have any, any more to say about sort of the origins in situation or, you know, what made that sentiment take this form? That was the Cliff's Notes. That was like the first time a lot of us had ever been in an airplane. I was on an airplane once before that. 19 years old, most of the band was between 18 and 22. And a lot of people, it was their first flight and their first time to L.A. I had been to L.A. a couple of times before because of my relatives. My uncle uh, George was out there, my Auntie Jenny. So I thought L.A. was the bee's knees, you know, with the palm trees and the flowers. It was just really cool. This was when a vehicle hit number one. And we went out to L.A. to do various things. We played the whiskey on the same bill as Tony Joe White and Stephen Stills. And we killed. You know, it was just a great, great moment. Joe Smith from Warner Brothers was there in the audience. And the comp- we met the company. And it's pretty heady stuff for, for 19-year-olds, you know. We did a couple more TV shows. We did the Mama Cash show, which and got to meet Dick Clark, who produced that show. And he sat in the back room telling us about his collection of Mercedes-Benz, vintage ones. And we also went to Sunset Sound and we recorded a song called Superman, which became the follow-up to Vehicle. So we're coming home, you know, after two weeks in LA and it was kind of this bittersweet feeling of, yeah, that was amazing. The girls, the palm trees, the food, the burritos, you know, Stephen Stills, we met George Harrison and yet we were homeboys, you know, and we kind of missed the bungalows of Berwin and our mom and dad. I wrote the song on the plane. I want to say on a barf bag, but I I don't have that bag anymore. But my wavelength gets a little longer every time I wave goodbye. I was just jotting down lyrics. I sat with my ovation guitar when I got home. And I said, I think the magic of that song is where it goes from the A major to the E minor. And now I feel like years away from the west side of Chicago. Now I feel like years away. It's an A major, then an E minor, and then Chicago is G, A. But it hits that E minor, and that wasn't the cliche at that time. That was really kind of unique, and I just fell on that chord, and it was like, you know, it's just wonderful feeling. A lot of people, that is like their favorite Eyed song ever. Talk to me a little about the arrangement here. Is Mike playing on his leg at the beginning? What, before we have the full drum kit? What? Boy, you're good. Yeah, he's playing on his jeans, man. And he does that live, too. He uh, makes sure the mic is positioned by his thighs, and it's just a very unique, slappy sound. I was playing Larry's J45 Gibson acoustic, and it was tuned down a half step. The whole track is in A flat, which is really strange. I think it was for the vocals that I was a little more comfortable singing it lower. Now when we do it, we do it in A prime. And at the time, we did it a half step down. Neither here nor there, but it adds a certain sound to the acoustic that it's kind of neat. It's, it's not quite tight. It's just a little bit looser. We were recording at RCA Studios on Wacker Drive, Chicago. Used to have an RCA that was just tremendous, almost a mirror image of the one in L.A. on Sunset. And it had a, a big Neve console, a giant room. We were used to recording at other studios. You wouldn't listen. We recorded at Sound Studios with Stu Black, who's an iconic engineer who recorded, you know, kind of a drag by the Buckinghams and I Confess by New County Six and Sugar and Spice by the Crying Chains. First guy to, to put a guitar through a Leslie. 
as far as I knew. And then we moved over to Chess Studios, 2120 Michigan. That was a great studio. We cut many of the Parrot singles. And then we ended up at Columbia Studios on Fairbanks in Chicago, and that's where we cut Vehicle. And it was like the first 16-track recorder in America. That's when the second engineer fucked up and erased 13 seconds of vehicle on the master take. I think you probably read that in the book. You know, it was a disaster until he found that take one that was just a fine stretch right there, even though we had no click, it fit perfect and history was restored. But then we, after CBS, Columbia Studios, we discovered RCA in Chicago and there's that pristine sound of the vocals that you hear on LA Goodbye that we couldn't have gotten at any other studio. It was like the first Neve console in Chicago, and we would triple the vocals. There was four of us singing times three. So right, left, and center. It was just a goosebump of overtones, and that's one of the sweetest blends if you really listen to Ella Goodbye. Of course, the re-record, we did our best, but I have to say the um, the original is still my favorite. So yeah, I think that's how, I'm trying to think, most of the big harmony bands that that's, I know how Beach Boys did it, I know like the Cars or Queen, you know, everybody would sing all the parts. Now we're going to sing, all sing the baritone part, which I guess then you can kick somebody out if they're not on key uh, or make them back away from the mic. But, you know, it's going to be the group sound, which has got to be very different than translating that live. I don't know. I kind of like like when you're listening to the band or something like, okay, they're singing a big harmony, but you know who's doing what part. That's a different approach with the band. Yeah, I mm-hmm. love the band. And I'll tell you, I don't know if you're familiar with the um, Survivor's Premonition record. That was our second album. Mm-hmm. But we used a lot of that Cars techniques. We would quadruple choruses. I want you, not I want you to, but if you ever get a chance to listen to like Summer Nights or, or The Hearts of Lonely Hunter, you hear that sound of Frankie, me, and Dave just magically. You know, it just sounds like magic. Four times three. 12 tracks, analog tape, which you can't, still can't beat. Yeah, the cars were the same way. You know, Roy Thomas Baker was the king of, of stacking. He used to bring his own multi-track. It was a 64-track multi-track. That was before anybody had one of these. And you hear that sound on the cars records, Best Friend's Girl, and then, of course, Queen. The way the voices rub against each other is just magical. So for this, where in the process would the la da 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 you know, would, would oh, we got to have a, let's have a breakdown. Let's introduce that. And the fact that that in the original version, in the edit, is so early in the song, like that's so clearly like an outro sort of gesture. <laughs> we didn't know what we were doing, but uh, <laughs> it worked, you know, and uh, some of the oddest things that become accepted were just kind of mistakes or kids going, well, let's put la da da It wasn't a conscious decision. Okay, we're going to design this. I was going to kick out of new bands who are doing demographic studies and, you know, their genre and their image. And we were just kids trying to impress the girls, you know, come on. <laughs> so what explains the lead guitar here that it's, I'm just going to play one riff. You know, as opposed to where it is at the beginning, I always think Buffalo Springfield stop children, but it's the, a single guitar note with tremolo. Like, you know, nobody can copyright that sound. It was obviously the idea was lifted from for what it's worth, you know, with that chime and the and the uh, tremolo and the doodly doodly. That's all Larry. Larry's doing all those parts. He's a great orchestrator. You know, he's not a lead player, but he's a great shader. 
you know, the great orchestrator with guitar. He's a big part of the I'd sound. Although on vehicle, he actually switched over to B3 because Bob, our bass player, switched to saxophone. So Larry's on B3 on vehicle, which is something that a lot of people don't know. And that was on the soul rhythm guitar. And we had a bass player for about a very short time named Ray Herr, H-E-R-R. He played the bass on that song. So on this, on L.A. Goodbye, who is doing the very active electric piano bit? That's me. Okay. That's me, and it's actually, it's actually a Celeste or a Celeste. Oh, a Celeste, yep. Yeah, sitting around at the studio, and I just started goofing around and playing black keys. And forget it was in A-flat, a so it was really a black key, easy thing to do. It just was a, such a nice touch. Something inside my brain needs to wave L.A. Goodbye. I guess acoustic acoustic makes sense. Uh, I was originally wrote thumb piano. I wasn't sure what what that was, but yeah, very percussive sound. Those are the days when studios had things hanging around like harpsichords. You know, that was so cool. Um, the chess studios had a harpsichord just sitting there. Boy, did I use that on some of the tracks. And there was this Celeste over at CBS that, ah, I got to play that, you know, and there was vibes and all these cool things just hanging around. And when the rhythm section finally does come in full on, is that a samba or something? Does double time rock? How are you guys thinking of that? Double time brushes, Marrakesh Express, you know, just kind of, I think, was that before Marrakesh or, or after Marrakesh? But it's that train beat, you know, it's just the brushes going. And LA Goodbye just seemed to, you know, Mike came up with that. But, you know, the real hero of that song, there's so many heroes, Bob Bergman and his very creative bass part. Yeah. I mean, I took it for granted how much he would add. He wasn't just a boom, 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 boom. And even on the Play On album, he would come up with creative stuff. And I might have underestimated how cool he was on bass. Well, and the place where the arrangement opens up at the very end of the chorus, I guess it, within the chorus, you're changing to a new key right in the middle of it. What is the mood? It's kind of been wistful here, but now it's like that key change. Suddenly we're very happy. You're talking about the bridge, yes. right? L.A., goodbye. L.A., I'm going to see you around sometime. L.A., have step up. Goodbye. Yeah, that's one of the favorite parts of, of the audience. Again, I don't know what we were doing. I just it felt right. And then L.A., goodbye. And all those cascading harmonies. And then it's a lot of the da ba da ba It worked. I assume it was cascading harmonies first, and then you decided, oh, let's add horns to it there because we're a horn band and it should go somewhere. <laughs> or <laughs> Exactly. Let's just stick a horn in there so they don't see Eyes of March. We still do that live. Yes, I will link folks to the recent, you've got multiple recent acoustic versions of that where you're all, you know, you can really tell everybody is singing. Every You'd refer to it as just a very ego-free group in terms of the singing, like that Larry was even the lead singer for the first 10 minutes, or you kind of shared it for the first, how did that work in terms of you becoming like the front man for the most part? He sang a flip side on the record in one of our RC releases. I don't know, maybe because I was, I shouted louder and, and <laughs> I asserted myself more. I don't know how, how it kind of shifted over to me, but Actually, he wouldn't listen. It was a duet. You know, he would go, I told you he was a fool. You so it was Larry, Jim, Larry, Jim. And You Need Love, he starts it. And then I go in on the chorus. 
It's actually a very good question. Well, and at that stage, you have very similar, I think, it's probably just, you know, whenever you, you play with somebody enough, then you kind of are all singing like you're part of the same family. <laughs> you know, at least ideally that you're listening to each other and you're kind of in the same. So, you know, it was very smooth. That seems like one of the difficult things in remaking L.A. Goodbye is that your voice is not the same. You can fake it pretty well. Was this re-recorded for the purpose of we want to license it out and don't want to pay <laughs> the other record company. Like, it seems like you put stuff in the stereo space exactly where it was before and tried your best to recreate your voice from so many years ago. That wasn't on our mind at the time. It really wasn't. We weren't thinking about the record company, but now that you mention it, it's a pretty good idea. But that wasn't on our minds, really. I think we just knew what worked and we tried to reproduce it. And uh, that's about it, really. Well, as a way of saying goodbye here, we wanted to play folks the spirit of Chicago from 1992, which you're, I guess, re-releasing in a another form to support what's going on. Do you want to just say a little about this? I see you have a load of guest vocalists. It's sort of a power ballad. It- you know, it is a Chicago anthem. It's the nature of the brave to rise above. It's the spirit of Chicago. We have, you know, Dennis DeYoung on it. We have Frankie Sullivan. We have Rick Nielsen and Kathy Richardson, who I still work with. And You've heard of Blue Storm Rising from Play On. She's just an absolute killer. And now she's, of course, the lead singer of Jefferson Starship and just killing it. But, you know, and there's a few late people that have died, like Gary Loiso of the American Breed sings the bridge, and Jim Ellison of Material Issue pipes up with some uh, vocals. John Melnick, who um, co-wrote a song with me and Dennis DeYoung that's uh, on his new album that's just about to come out called East of Midnight. He's got that beautiful Riders on the new horizon at just the break of day. Just a beautiful sound. So it has some real killers on this song. And it looks like we, I don't want to announce anything yet, but the mayor of Chicago really loves this song. We're hoping it becomes the, the city song anthem. So we're, we've got our fingers crossed. Well, that's nice to have written your own We Are the World, essentially. <laughs> you know, a, lo- a local version of We Are the World. We Are Berwyn, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, man, it was a really pleasure talking to someone who's so inside songs and really knows what he's talking about. That is really, really cool. Well, it's a lot of fun. Stay in touch. I'll talk to you soon.
Thanks so much to Jim. He just had so much material to choose from. He ended up actually choosing those songs. Or maybe it was Scott May, who is his representative, also the current keyboardist for Ides of March. And thanks also to Melissa at Moxie Publicity, who set this up. You can learn all about Jim's various bands at jimpeterick.com. Now, I hope I wasn't too fast and loose with the first names on this episode. I had just finished reading Through the Eye of the Tiger, The Rock and Roll Life of Survivor's Founding Member which is from 2014. If you're wanting to hear more songs about Survivor, then that is the place to look. As we talked about a lot, Frankie Sullivan was the guitarist who was Jim's main collaborator in that band. It was obviously a very effective band for hit making, but it was very stressful for Jim. He kind of started it as a 
extension of his solo work. He broke up the Ides of March to go solo. He was singing on commercials, and he wanted to elevate the project. So he got Dave Bickler, who was another singer on commercials, who had a stronger voice than he was. They were going to be a dual vocal band, and he got Frankie Sullivan, this young, poised, really rocking guitarist that was supposed to be a dual guitar band. And Frankie was very talented, but very, very opinionated and... According to the autobiography, it was Frankie's decision that Jim would not get to sing lead on anything and then that he wouldn't get to play guitar. So he ended up being just the keyboardist in that band. And the whole situation was very stultifying, which is why after Survivor broke up, there was a solo album by Jimmy Jameson, the second singer for Survivor, who sang just as many of the hits as Dave. And Jim wrote all the songs in that album, played all the guitar, kind of did Survivor as he would have liked to have done it. And that's also how I interpret the Pride of Lions project. Toby Hitchcock really could have been a singer for Survivor, and they play a lot of Survivor songs live. They really do them justice. It's pretty much the same formula, except without Frankie breathing down Jim's neck. So they really do do dual vocal arrangements on things and seem to have a lot of fun. Anyway, I enjoyed prepping for this a lot more than I thought I would. I encourage you to check out the range of Jim's material. And of course, come back to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I want you to subscribe directly to this podcast. My next guest will be Katie Jane Garside. She was the original singer for Daisy Chainsaw, which was an early 90s British grunge thing. And she's done a lot of wonderful stuff since then. Her current project was until recently called Ruby Throat. Now it is called Liar Flower. And most recently, just yesterday, I interviewed a fellow called Ward White, who is a super interesting singer-songwriter. You're going to like that interview when it finally drops. And I'm even more excited about the next one that I'm prepping for now, but I don't want to tell you about it until it actually happens. I don't want to jinx it. So my schedule is full going forward. Still, if you want to ensure that this podcast keeps happening, if you want to show your appreciation, I would so appreciate if you would go to patreon.com slash music. You sign up for a very small monthly contribution. You'll get bonus content for some of the older episodes. You'll get ad-free versions of these episodes. If I get enough subscribers there, I will start doing blogs there just for you. In any case, thank you so much for listening. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Break God in heaven, you know.